You are listening to GLJ Specials, a podcast by the German Law Journal. Here, we talk to our authors and deep dive into selected articles and special issues, all of which you can find at germanlawjournal.com. This is episode one. Border Justice, Migration and Accountability for Human Rights Violations. My guests today are Ita Marman, Senior Researcher at the University of Haifa, and Catherine Costello, Professor for Fundamental Rights at the Hattie School in Berlin, and Professor for Migration Law at the University of Oxford. First, what motivated you to put together a special issue on this topic? So why the focus on accountability, um, and why is migration such an important um, topic for this? Um, thanks, Nora. So um, I guess I worked on the human rights of migrants and refugees for a long time. And you mentioned my monograph. And I guess what I had argued there was that um, status migration control assumptions lead to a lot of weakness in terms of both the way substantively the human rights of migrants are understood. So the state's migration control prerogatives are given a lot of sway. Um, so there's treatment that's I think often legal, but still looks like a pretty serious infringement, if not violation of human rights. Um, and also just that there's, aside from that sort of normative issue, this, there's a massive practical issue of massive human rights um, violations within migration control that are either sort of obscured um, or not even recognized or are sort of quite spectacular and visible, but it's very hard to trace accountability in a legal sense for them. So there was that sort of doctrinal problem and a practical problem. Um, and I suppose I had a curiosity about it too, because I'd written about these issues very much with a European focus and looking at EU law and the ECHR. But I was increasingly seeing that um, the same sorts of problems were being framed in terms of international criminal law or tort law or different bodies of law were being mobilized, if you like, to try to address these problems. And I thought there was... Um, it was timely to look at these questions in sort of a broader frame. And I was really keen to explore those different sort of legal avenues, as well as just looking at these questions as straightforward questions of human rights law. Yeah, um, I joined uh, second. This was actually a project initiated in, uh, by Catherine, and then uh, she kindly offered me to join as a co-editor. This uh, really appealed to me. I found it attractive because it seemed to propose an opportunity to think about uh, legal and doctrinal questions, as well as theoretical questions about accountability, alongside um, questions that come from the context of human rights uh, struggles and specifically struggles that take the form of litigation. And I think that was the main motivation for me to join, to try to see whether I can learn something from uh, the work that I have done over the years in the context of litigation and uh, the work that other people have done on the ground um, in similar contexts about the more general kind of uh, theoretical question of accountability and also, you know, the other way around. What can cutting-edge scholarship, the kind of scholarship that we try to bring together in um, this volume, what can it teach us and what can it propose in terms of further avenues of imposing accountability on states and asserting the rule of law in this context where oftentimes uh, violations are rife. And I think um, it makes sense to bear in mind that the migrant or the refugee both are often considered a kind of 
very uh, principled challenge for liberal democracies in terms of um, their rule of law mechanisms. And this is something that we have seen since the 2015, uh, the beginning of the 2015 refugee crisis. And we're seeing now in a kind of great and even spectacular volume in the context of new migration restrictions in the, um, surrounding COVID. So um, that was, you know, the reason that motivated a lot of scholarship in the past to address this issue. And it also was part of the background that brought us to this topic as well. So you've, um, I mean, you've already mentioned um, some litigation that you were involved in, but um, you both have already uh, worked on this area of, of refugee rights uh, more broadly for years. Um, why did it seem timely to draw together this special issue at this point in time? Bear in mind that the, the point in time when we started working on this was quite different than the current moment where we pub when we publish it. The point in time when we started working on this, I think, was a point in time when a lot of uh, the scholarly discussion in human rights law and constitutional law had to do with uh, the, the notion of backlash. We were starting to see um, so-called populist governments in many parts of Europe, as well as the United States, and migrants and refugees became scapegoats for those governments um, to direct uh, popular anger and popular resentments and, and divert attention from other uh, issues of uh, distribution and um, rule of law at home. And that was really, I think, the backdrop for um, the collection at that time. But I think um, as we were finishing the collection, we started to see a rather different context. And this is something that I you know, already touched upon, which is um, this kind of populist or um, uh, you know, this kind of rhetorical move to direct anger and, and resentment against migrants was becoming something uh, related more clearly to the restrictions in the context of health. And um, it almost seemed like this was the precipice of a new uh, period when the mm -hmm. collection was published. But I think that looking back, we will find out that there's a lot of continuity as well. Yeah, I think it's it's probably useful to say that we we finished editing it in January 2020. Mm -hmm. So it appeared in April. So in terms of the, the post-pandemic world, we were just on the precipice of it. But obviously, we didn't know, really. I think we did have one conversation about this new virus in China, probably as we were doing the final edits, but uh, before we thought that through. Um, but I think definitely, for me, the in terms of certainly the doctrinal issues, it was really about looking beyond human rights and EU law. Um, I was particularly intrigued at the uh, turn to international criminal law, which Itamar had written about with Yanis Kalpuzas. So his piece, um, an older piece on the um, detention in Greece as the mm -hmm. potential international crime, I had always found that really interesting. And I guess that's not my own area of academic expertise. So I was really keen to get people together who worked across across different areas of international law. So is that because um, you had the impression that um, EU law and EU fund or EU human right, European human rights law was limited in a way and that there was something missing or why this interest to go beyond it? I guess I think the, the question is really interesting about what is international criminal law for? 
Um, and so, and what does it mean if you frame particular violations of human rights as an international crime? Presumably this, and this is something that's expressed in Yanis Kalpuzis's piece in the collection, you know, this has a particular expressive function. I was also really un- interested in thinking through, well, what practical function does that have in terms of accountability, in terms of accountability for private actors? Um, I suppose there was a sense, and Itamar mentioned the backlash literature, but that uh, not that the European courts are exhausted, but that they were in a sort of a cautious mode. Um, And also that states are getting cannier in the migration control practices they engage in. And so we're also very much in the post-2015 world where the volume of resources, fiscal resources and practical resources being put into externalized migration control have increased. Um, And so in our introduction, we sort of set that up as sort of the roots of the current condition and then crisis and stasis, how the refugee crisis didn't provoke fundamental rethinking of the common European asylum system. So the roots of another crisis are are right there. Um, And so, yeah, there was a sense that the the EU as part of the problem um, didn't seem to have the resources to solve this from within. Um, I say that having written a book that came out in 2015, but I started it much earlier where I had put a lot of uh, hope and uh, and a really, I think, a strong normative argument that the Court of Justice of the EU could really become a court of inclusion. Um, and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But I also think the, the rationale of the special issue was to say, look, there isn't a silver bullet for these kinds of problems. They're multifaceted and accountability is not before a single forum. This is really about looking more widely, which is, a, I think, something that really comes out in Thomas Gameltoft Hansen and Nick Tan's contribution mm-hmm. as well, about looking what they call topographically across different regimes and different systems to find accountability. So tell me a little bit about your, um, your the process of making this special issue. I mean, you've talked about, you know, when you finished and when it was published, but mm-hmm. it was a long time coming. Uh, and you brought together a, a huge number of authors with very long and very strong pieces. Um, were there during this time any disagreements conceptually between the two of you? Um, how did this play out? How was like what was the process of making this special issue as a research process like? Well, I think what came first was a workshop, and then I think um, and the workshop had been something I had planned before my ERC project actually because I had just been really keen to have more people in the room than the usual suspects on migration. So I had spent a lot of time trying to get general public international lawyers involved. Um, As it happens, they haven't been involved. (laughs) So it is more usual suspects who have form writing about migration. Um, But I had been originally really keen to draw in certain people who were just general experts on public international law, because I feel like you can focus a lot on migration control and not be aware of how much a kind of a space of exception it is for legal doctrines that get really distorted. Um, so there was a workshop in Oxford um, and I knew Itamar's work already and Itamar attended and we, I was sort of keen to, to work with him given his background in international criminal law. And actually it was Lillian Sordi, my colleague who has her piece in EASO there, who was at that time my colleague at the Refugee Studies Centre in Oxford who said, you know, this should be a special issue, the German Law Journal uh, deadline is in a few weeks, which is always very motivating. <laughs> but we really, if if we were going to put it anywhere, it was a great fit because it has that breadth of legal uh, regimes that we're looking at. 
Um, and obviously, because the journal is open access, that makes it a really easy choice to make over any other forum to publish in, because, you know, it's just going to be easily accessible to people. Um, and then I guess there was a process after that when we thought about inviting other contributors. Um, and I guess we did think, and I was quite keen to have some pieces that looked more at maybe what I'd call banal migration control, particularly carrier sanctions. Um, and we did have some discussions with scholars who were working on that if they had any piece that they wanted to include. So Thomas Feikenborg, for example, whose work is cited in almost every piece. But, um, so there was a kind of a curation process where we discussed what's missing, what else could go in. Um, a couple of people we'd originally envisaged weren't able to contribute, but it was it was relatively plain sailing, I think, because the workshop had come first quite early in the process. Although Itamar may have a different recollection whether there were disagreements along the way. No, no, not at all. I, I think I um, recall more or less the same process, but I, I do have a few uh, other kind of perspectives. Um, first, I want to echo your note about uh, the German Law Journal and just say that it was a really... Um, excellent decision, really excellent um, advice from Lillian over there, because um, the, the way that um, you, Nora, streamlined the process was remarkable, and um, the, the, the speed in which we managed to get from the first draft to the, the kind of uh, final PDF was really amazing uh, in comparison to anything that I, I've known in the past, so really thank you for that. It's really, uh, I think, um, very, very important for this topic in particular to be um, out there quite quickly. Um, in terms of disagreements, I don't think that um, Catherine and I had so many disagreements along the way, but I do think that we had um, dilemmas. And uh, those dilemmas specifically um, were also not only dilemmas between us, but also with the, with the several, with the different authors and their approaches. So we have, uh, we have um, consciously uh, devised a group of authors that come with quite different methodological toolkits. Some are more doctrinal, some work um, more theoretically or more close to a law and society approach. And in many cases, we wanted to bring the pieces into greater conversation and involve, um, you know, insights from one piece in another or see how they, how they come together. And um, specifically, I think that we found that, as we tried to state briefly in the introduction, we have, I think, under, two underlying differing views about um, the relationship between human rights litigation and legal scholarship. And here I identify specifically, I you know, I think specifically representing these, this are the pieces with by Thomas Gamble, Dr. Hansen, and Nick Tan. On the one hand, the piece that Catherine already described, which has takes a kind of pragmatist approach, an all things considered approach in terms of choosing a forum and trying to assert accountability and how to expand jurisdiction and how to respond to political and forces surrounding uh, the set of events that one wants to address through a, with, by a, a, appealing to a court. And on the other hand, we have a piece uh, like um, Violetta moreno Lox's piece, very impressive um, reinterpretation of the notion of jurisdiction under Article 1 of the European Convention of Human Rights that takes an approach um, that moves somewhat away from the notion of control as it has developed in the jurisprudence 
to um, a different notion of the kind of effective government authority um, and, you know, that has a kind of governmental authority over a particular situation, which needs to therefore also have human rights jurisdiction. And that's not a pragmatist approach. That is a very principled uh, foundationalist approach, if you will. And I think that's the most kind of pointed uh, continuum uh, of differing opinions where I think readers might also want to try to situate themselves and understand where they uh, fit, where their approach fits in and which orientation do they feel is more useful. I should, I should say um, yeah. there was at one point we had a, a note that we had given to workshop participants because there had been a call and that there was quite a long process. And, and one question that I had asked everyone to address, and I think no one did, myself included, <laughs> was what, are, what is the relationship between political and legal accountability? Um, and in the end, most of the pieces are about legal accountability. I mean, Lillian looks at the ombuds, the European ombudsman. Um, but, but for the most part, they're about legal accountability, sometimes through things like positive duties and due diligence obligations, which obviously are mainly operationalized in the political context, but they're mainly looking at accountability, I think, in a legal sense. But nobody, and given that there is a backlash literature out there, which would suggest sometimes legal accountability can be counterproductive. Um, yeah, I was, it wasn't so much a disappointment, but I think that work is definitely still to be done. Um, yeah, maybe by different people than legal yeah. scholars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the hammer and the nail thing, you know. If you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yep. Um, I think I think you guys did a did a really great job at um, at bringing the pieces into a conversation with, with one another within the special issue. Um, so the authors frequently reference the other pieces, and uh, a lot of them sort of overlap in what they talk about, but sort of also. Um, show how there are different approaches to them. So I think that works really, really well. Um, that said, though, would you think that you can formulate um, what the most important findings are? Um, I mean, or are there disagreements over what the findings should be? And um, not only in terms of which approaches to accountability you find most promising, but also maybe whether there are areas where you didn't really get anywhere. So are there, I mean, is there something like a natural limit to how much how much you can do with legal tools. Um, is there something like an end to this cat and mouse game between states avoiding responsibility and, you know, court cases catching up with them and trying to establish accountability? So interestingly, I think the main uh, finding or thread that came through many of the piece, pieces was the importance of positive duties in human rights law, which is something that I didn't specifically expect but that I think that since we published uh, the special issue and in the last uh, weeks and months has a really um, kind of um, suggested very, very interesting new um, fora for accountability and, and legal actions um, that really in, in some way are foreshadowed um, in the special issue in my view. And specifically I'm thinking of my colleague Valentina Azarova who uh, is with the Global Legal Action Network and has drafted a very, in my view, impressive um, complaint uh, concerning uh, EU funding uh, to Libya and the kind of due diligence obligations and duties that attach to uh, development funding when uh, there is an entirely foreseeable and, in fact, well-documented record of that funding reaching 
detention facilities that impose inhuman and degrading treatment, as well as systematic um, violations of the right to leave, and a kind of idea that human rights need to be enforced ex ante, or you know, it's not only our job as lawyers to come after the violation and look back and say, we now need to hold uh, whatever authority or person accountable, but also we need to think how to prevent uh, these violations. And I think Carla Firstman, Daria Deviti, and, Valentin, uh, and, and, and Vladislava Sotoyanova's um, pieces all, um, you know, kind of articulate that view in a very um, in, impressive and um, comprehensive way. In terms of your other question about um, the limits or where one hits mm -hmm. a brick wall, I think my own piece, in a way, uh, tries to um, gesture towards that question. I focus on um, civil disobedience and about uh, on the role of um, rescue activists, in particular, in the Mediterranean. And I try to suggest that any enforcement is preconditioned on the very presence of people surrounding the event, whether that is through you know, physically or through surveillance mechanisms, but there cannot be enforcement without this kind of civic engagement with the problem that really uh, is, is at, the, at the basis for what we're talking about, which is oftentimes in spaces of debatable jurisdiction and uh, beyond uh, territorial borders. So that's, I think, the, how I think of that second interesting question about the, the limits. I think of the limits as signaled and kind of expanded, but not by legal action. Um, rather, I think of it as outlined by the activists that try to you know, get there and see what's happening and be involved. Maybe before you uh, jump in, Catherine, I want to pick up on something that you said about the importance of general international law, because I think the question of whether there are limits to accountability uh, also pertains to how you view international law as a whole, whether you think it's um, it contains a number of regimes that have developed over time and that are sort of issue specific and in between there may be nothing mm. or whether you think they're a system and um, sort of they basically govern everything. Um, I don't want you to take a position on this very fundamental question, but I do think that there is something very fundamental there. Well, this is a, this was a discussion that we had Edmar and I about his piece about you know this moment of rescue and whether it's juris generative or at what point is there no law and you do at some point get into these kind of jurisprudential and sort of systemic questions. Um, I mean, I suppose I tend to see the practicalities as very fragmented, but the, the to make normative sense of them, you have to think of them systemically. So I sort of wear two contradictory hats in how I look at the legal universe. Um, but I, I think I think Edmar summarized the sort of if you if you call it a finding, but I guess a common theme which we mm -hmm. around positive duties. And I, I think what was really interesting about those three pieces, as he said, is we didn't ask people to think about positive duties. It just really came through very strongly in those mm -hmm. three pieces. Um, and partly, I think the focus is because there's a lot of action by private actors, um, mm -hmm. but not only. Um, I mean, that's particularly in the case of, of Daria Davidi's contribution. I had always been a little bit skeptical about business and human rights and due diligence standards. But of course, then for some people, they read those 
as an articulation of broader principles in international law. So just where the line between a positive human rights duty is and a due diligence obligation um, and the relationship between those two conceptual frameworks, I think they work out in slightly different ways in their contributions. Do you think that this um, is also um, a way where social um, human rights um, suddenly maybe have an unexpected <laughs> time of glory where, you know, this whole doctrinal figure of positive obligations has already been developed and where also there is no jurisdiction clause. So maybe they mm -hmm. pose less uh, problems there. And and it's sort of and it's acknowledged that human rights are transnational in that context, mm -hmm. so that there's cooperative obligations, positive positive ones, not just um, that you have transnational cooperation to do bad things because it's an easier context to escape accountability. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think at that point about direct action, um, it comes out obviously in Itamar's piece, but we also mentioned in passing in our conclusion other contexts where individuals are asserting their right to engage in assistance to irregular migrants, which, as we know, in Europe has been sort of widely criminalized or at least suppressed legally, um, sometimes under the guise of smuggling, then sometimes under the guise of implementing the EU facilitation directive. It always amazes me how EU law manages to give things the most banal sounding names, but this very sinister directive called a very benign sounding thing, the facilitation directive, which requires states to suppress all sorts of assistance, not just to enter states irregularly, but to stay in them, which potentially means, you know, all sorts of engagement with people in a civic way if they're of dubious migration status. Um, but I, I'm interested also then, I guess, and this maybe answers the question that sometimes law, you know, you make law by invoking it. So the mm -hmm. we mentioned just in passing at the end three legal victories against the overbreath of these legal measures, these anti-smuggling or anti-assistance measures. So a Canadian Supreme Court case, which is quite a few years old now, um, the Eru ruling of the French Conseil Constitutionnel, and just as we were finishing, I think the Sea Watch ruling from Italy came out, the acquittal. Um, and in, obviously those are national constitutional rulings and they mm -hmm. deal with international law, either not at all or in very different ways. Obviously that's something where Different states have very different approaches to international law, both systematically and jurisprudentially within their uh, case law. Uh, but they have in common this, you know, insiders, if you like, citizens mainly invoking their right to assist um, and, and winning. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that is uh, in a way that then curtails the legislative measures that I think are, you know, by any measure overbroad and according to those rulings, sort of unconstitutional in the way that they're being applied. Um, so I think more generally, although this, there isn't a conclusion on this question in the special issue, but more generally, I tend to think very much about um, Sheila Benabib's work about um, jurisgenerative politics and, you know, that these are the points, these questions are constantly contested in bounded polities, but that contestation can take place in different fora, sometimes just through direct political action, which brings about political change, sometimes through litigation, which, you know, takes a, a principled line on a particular practice and its unconstitutionality, but that some of these are all part of the sort of same sort of politics of inclusion. So, I mean, those are great findings for the area of migration law. Um, but what do you think, I mean, what now? Um, what can 
other researchers do with these findings? Um, can you develop them into other areas? Um, what is maybe the next frontier also? But Adama, at the beginning, you mentioned um, the sort of interplay between uh, theory and practice uh, in this area. What can maybe practitioners do with these events, uh, with these results? And possibly um, has COVID-19 Uh, rendered some of these insights already obsolete? Are we already in the next phase? And um, do we have to reconsider a lot of what you've done, um, given all the mobility uh, obstacles that we have today? Yeah, um, I have uh, been following uh, the Eastern Mediterranean in particular since the beginning of COVID-19, or it's, it's kind of play out in the migration context also Malta and Italy to some extent. And in all contexts, I think that what we're seeing right now, at least in these kind of maritime routes, is a need to, to refocus, a necessity to refocus on the hardcore of refugee law, migration law, human rights law. What I mean by that is to say that over uh, the years, um, you know, going perhaps even two decades back, We've been talking about externalization all the time. And our conversation about externalization has become more and more sophisticated, at times even ornate in the way that it goes to extraterritorial authorities, to international agreements, both covert and manifest, and um, really tries to expand the notion of jurisdiction and the notion of accountability. But what we're seeing now in the mid-Mediterranean is a violation of the very core the very basics of international human rights law when it, as it applies to migrants and refugees. Um, in simple terms, we're seeing in the Greek context, the more or less systematic violation of the rule of non-reform law. Um, these returns are being, carry, being carried out, um, you know, oftentimes using inhuman degrading uh, means or torture. And this seems like a place where uh, judicial intervention is you know, invite, is really needed even in the most conservative interpretation of the rules without having to expand or try to innovate. And there, there is, I think, this kind of need to pull back and, and, and look, look at the basics because the basics are very much under pressure. Um, asylum, whether asylum is lost or not, to use Daniel uh, Gesselbash's terms, is still to be determined, but in terms of what is happening right now, that is, that is my kind of most immediate um, reaction. And whether um, researchers can use um, our findings and our articles, I think, I hope so. You know, I, I, can only, I can only hope that we give tools. I think as we, as, um, I already, as we both already discussed, the uh, positive duties or um, positive uh, due diligence obligations uh, articles that we provide do give tools that are already uh, put into use. Um, and here I need to say also there was a collaboration between Carla and um, Valentina in writing and, and producing this intervention. But I think that, um, you know, um, the, the paper uh, Cunningham, Charlie, and Catherine wrote together is very useful in um, thinking about forums to, in which we can, that we can engage more, even on these kind of basic issues that I um, alluded to. And I think that, I hope that um, uh, the strand that Yanis Kalpuzos um, 
points to, one that I've been involved in as well, um, accountability through criminal law is um, not, um, you know, over. We have, I should say in this context that we have seen since um, we started to use this tool, very little actual engagement in terms of investigation or prosecution. But I think the interest is really on the rise and constantly, you know, continuing. And I don't think that we have uh, still seen the last word on this. And there's also uh, considerable room to engage domestic courts in their domestic jurisdiction or in the context of universal jurisdiction as well, and in the context of the criminal accountability of firms, companies that are involved in these practices. So if you're out there and you're looking for a project, I, I think that trying to prosecute uh, if you're trying to prosecute someone, I wouldn't go for the ICC, but I think there's still a lot to do uh, in domestic contexts um, mm -hmm. uh, with regard to personal as well as um, um, personal accountability for individuals as well as companies. So um, I agree with that. I think one, as well as positive duties, we also sort of reflect a bit on strategic litigation and what it means. And I think there were actually some sort of paradoxical reflections about strategic litigation. And uh, Thomas and Nick in their piece quote um, Adam Weiss from the um, Roma Rights Center in this uh, sort of saying, well, there's no such thing as a strategic case. There's just a strategic you know, pattern of litigation that one could engage in so that it's sort of a, a process rather than a, a single hit. But also he calls these wins sort of black swans because you have to have so many different factors lined up to get a transformative court case. And to me, that seems almost, that doesn't seem necessarily very strategic to me. Um, and I'm always struck that there's a, a small important literature on strategic litigation in relation to migration and asylum, which is which is cited. Obviously, there's um, Moritz Baumgartel's book, is, is mentioned in passing, some work by Steve Melly, which looks mainly at Latin America and a few other pieces. But compared to other areas of human rights, you know, we don't have a very solid empirical literature. And this would be literature mainly by, by social scientists with empirical mm -hmm. skills. It could be lawyers, but I guess in the European context, they're less likely to be. But there isn't really the equivalent of, say, Lisa Van Halle's work on disability rights or, you know, Catherine Sicking's amazing body of work on human rights, where you really get an account of what works and when. Um, so I think that that's a kind of part of a future scholarly agenda, which always looks at courts not in isolation, but litigation as part of broader strategies. I think that's the, the hallmark of most of that sort of literature. Um, I think as Sitamar said, you know, the practices in Europe, I mean, it's hard to say are things getting better or worse, but certainly, you know, they're egregious, pervasive um, human rights violations, you know, which, you know, on any, by any measure are breaches of non-refumo and also just, um, I shouldn't say just, but, you know, straightforwardly um, inhuman and degrading treatment of detainees. And obviously in the pandemic context, a lot of reception centers de facto become places of detention because people have been effectively locked into them, which changes their legal character and obviously their, their, their the practical experience of living in them vastly. Um, and, but I think the question of border violence in, in just a very, not in a sense of structural violence, but just physical border violence done at European borders and EU borders in particular, I mean, that to me seems to be 
crying out for some sort of EU level inquiry or response. Um, I always found it interesting that Francois Crepeau, when he was UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Migrants, those were his first reports were on European borders. And those reports are now what, over five years old mm-hmm. or even, even older, I think. So, um, you know, that the issue that you might get killed or beaten up by a border guard if you try to cross a European border and you don't look right um, is, you know, a massive human rights issue for the EU. And it's very difficult to make it into a political issue at the EU level. Um, and whether everything has changed in the pandemic era, I think well, it's hard to say in the middle of it all, but I've been struck, I suppose, by two things. One is that the normalization of internal restrictions on internal mobility, including of citizens, um, I mean, which I guess is the pervasive experience of life in lockdown or in uh, globally. Um, I mean, there's maybe there's a window of opportunity there in terms of of empathy, political empathy, and understanding, well, these mobility restrictions for most of us seem, you know, absolutely extreme, but but for most asylum seekers living in Europe, they live under a lot of mobility restrictions for no good reason, for no good collective or individual reason. Um, so that was one sort of positive thought. Um, but also in the, I mean, the I've completely lost track, but there has been a vast amount of pandemic-related litigation, um, mm. and some of it impactful in both the global north and in the global south. So in the global south, there have been examples of lockdowns being legally struck down for lack of food assistance. So courts saying to governments, you can't tell people to stay at home and not go to work if they don't have money or food. So if you're going to do that, then you owe people um, an obligation of, of um, basic subsistence at the very least, but and also impactful. And I think that is something that comes through a little bit in the collection about, and very much, as I said, in it's in Thomas and Nick's piece about um, litigation in the global south and so not dismissing accountability for uh, outside Europe even if the root cause of a lot of these practices is um, is in European practices so um, so the example that's cited a couple of times in the special issue is the litigation in Papua New Guinea which ended up I guess if it's hard to identify a single causal link but it was certainly the catalyst for um, bringing some of the worst aspects of Europe, of Australian offshore detention to an end. Um, they also mention in passing litigation in um, Latin America, which has challenged the pretty egregious version of safe third country that the US is trying to impose in that context. So in Guatemala in particular. Um, so I think looking at and, and that requires scholars in Europe to really form alliances, scholarly ones, and then for legal activists like Itamar, just more practical ones with um, what's happening in, with, in, in countries outside of Europe and, and in the global south in particular. And, and I guess maybe just leaving that heuristic behind of the global north and global south. And, and I think that's pertinent then for another reason, which is, of course, you can't assume anymore that the rule of law and liberal democracy are secure within the EU. Um, so we need that toolkit from people who are used to fighting authoritarianism now within the EU. So that's, you know, and that challenge isn't really discussed at all in the special issue, but obviously mm-hmm. it's something the German Law Journal has covered a lot. But, you know, if you're somebody um, at the sharp end of border violence in Hungary, then 
you know, there are obviously people who do amazing litigation based in Hungary, but um, yeah, the Hungarian courts are themselves not always the reliable forum and the European Court of Human Rights is itself under immense strain. So you can't assume that, you know, that these traditional routes to accountability are the, are going to be the effective ones. All right. So lots out there still, although you've uh, drawn together such an impressive and comprehensive, I think, um, special issue. Um, it's been an absolute joy working with you um, through this. I think those are really brilliant uh, contributions. And I think um, your introductory piece also really brings them together and draws out um, the common points and maybe the disagreements. Um, so a pleasure to read. Um, and it was also a pleasure for me to talk to you. Uh, my name is Nora Markard. I'm uh, a member of the editorial board of the German Law Journal. And this was GLJ Specials. Thank you.